Good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. Here at Sojourn, we, we believe in, in the gospel. The gospel that says that we are all created in the image and likeness of God to live fully for God and for his glory, but that we have rejected him, we've rebelled against him, and because of that, we are deserving of his wrath, we are deserving of, of hell, we're deserving of, of condemnation. But God, in his great love for us that we just sang about, sent forth himself in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. And what, what we have now before us is this invitation to share in the death of Jesus, an invitation to die to ourselves and to live to something greater. But it's not just an invitation into death, it's also an invitation into life, that there's more than just death for us, that there's something that we're being invited to that's much greater than even life itself. It's life eternal, life without death forevermore. And this is what we've been called to, and this is what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you guys have a Bible, we've been working through 1 Corinthians. We've got a couple more weeks in 1 Corinthians, and uh, then we'll move on to a different book probably in the next couple weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we are, starting in verse 50. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, hear the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and, all the, mor- and the mortal puts on the immortal- immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. And what we believe about the future will undoubtedly and will definitely, most definitely, impact our actions in the present. If I believe that there is a chance that I will have to have heart surgery in the future, then it might make me think about going on a walking regimen or changing up my diet. Now, if I believe that there is an investment that I can make that will gain me financially in the future, it will change where I put my money now. If I believe certain things about the future, it will impact my, my present because it is showing, my actions in the present are showing what I really believe about the future. That is to say that our actions in the present are a great barometer to show us what we really believe in the future. And here at Sojourn, most likely, our problem won't likely be that we're going to stand up and deny the resurrection. Our problem likely won't be that mentally we're going to disagree with it. Or that we're going to turn to Scripture and say, there is no resurrection, Christ hasn't been raised, and we won't be raised. That's likely not our problem. But perhaps our problem could be 
that our actions now aren't really reflecting what we're saying about the resurrection in the future. That our actions now aren't really reflecting that we really believe that not only has Jesus been raised, but he will also raise us from the dead. And so as Paul concludes chapter 15, what he's trying to get us to do is, is to be empowered now to labor for the Lord because of the reality of this future bodily resurrection that he's been explaining in chapter 15. You see, the, the end, this bodily resurrection that he's talking about, is meant to transform the present for us as believers. And that's what Paul's getting at, and he's doing here first, is he's trying to, to clue us in to the future. And so this is where we turn. He, he inter, encourages our present by looking to the future. If you look in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We think, all right, so we've been talking about what it means to be a Christian. Here's the gospel. We talk about heaven. We talk about what is the kingdom of God? Why do we get this inheritance of the kingdom of God? And what is it? Well, the kingdom of God is where God reigns, finally and fully. And this is Paul speaking of this future kingdom that they will inherit, believers will inherit, where God is finally and fully reigning over all. That means that everything has been set right. That means that sin has been eradicated. That means that there is no more injustice. That means everything is the way it was meant to be from the beginning, finally and fully. Right now, we don't live in that reality. We have an already but not yet present kingdom of God. But there is this future inheritance that Paul is speaking about here where believers will inherit the kingdom of God where God will finally and fully reign over all, supreme, and everyone will recognize him as such and everything will be set right again. This is the inheritance that Paul is speaking about in verse 50. And he says that this is an imperishable inheritance. In other words, it doesn't fade away. It can't be killed off. There's nothing that can happen to it. It is imperishable and it is for believers. It's a good reminder from the beginning that Paul kind of brings them in again after kind of going through the ups and downs of encouragement and exhortation of these Corinthians. He brings them in again. He says, I want to tell you this, brothers. There's some kindness and some compassion as he continues to approach and address this church. But he also is addressing the church. He is addressing believers. We don't have this full explanation about the unbeliever and their resurrection and what's going to happen at the end here. Paul doesn't seem to be concerned with the resurrection of unbelievers and all that, how it's worked out here. There are other places in the scripture that talk about that. But here he's talking about believers. Here he's talking about the resurrection of believers. And he has said earlier what has happened to the unrighteous. They don't inherit the kingdom of God, he says in chapter 6. The unrighteous will not inherit this kingdom. And so here he's saying, but, but believers, those who are our brothers who have trusted in Christ, they have this imperishable inheritance awaiting them known as the kingdom of God. And this means that every single person is going to, be, as a believer, enter into that inheritance. But something has to happen for us to do that. We can't inherit this kingdom as flesh and blood. We can't inherit this kingdom as perishable beings. And so every single person, living or dead, will have to be changed. Unbelievers won't inherit the kingdom, but neither will flesh and blood, neither will the perishable. Something will have to change to inherit the kingdom. We cannot remain as we are and inherit the kingdom of God. And so he continues on, verse 51, and he says, I want to tell you a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That is to say, not everyone is going to die before this happens, 
but every single person, living or dead, must be changed in order to get this inheritance of the kingdom. And this is good news because he said in verse 50, flesh and blood can't inherit this, the perishable things can't inherit this, but believers, for those who have trusted in Christ, those are the people who are going to be changed and transformed in such a way that we can inherit this kingdom of God now. Not all will sleep. Not all will die before this happens, but all flesh and blood will be changed and must be changed. And so he's even kind of reassuring them here. You don't have to worry about believers who have already died and passed away. They're gonna be changed. You don't have to be worried about believers who are alive. They will be changed as well. And indeed, this is a necessity. They must be changed. Paul goes on to explain a little bit more about how this is going to happen. If you read in verse 52 and 53, he says this is, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, the assumption through this passage for Paul here is stuff that we've already talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. That is that Jesus has been raised bodily from the dead and that just as Jesus has been raised, we also will be raised. That Jesus is the first fruits. He is the guarantee for believers that if Jesus has been raised, there is a guarantee for all believers, living or dead, that they too will be raised like Christ was raised. And this is the assumption that is working out through chapter 15. And he says, for those who are believers, who are in Christ, there's this necessary change for you to inherit this kingdom that you will have to put on this imperishable body. And this is going to happen for you, and it will happen instantaneously. It's in the blink of an eye. Now, it takes us minutes to get dressed. I mean, like if we went as fast as we could, we probably couldn't do it in under like 30 seconds. And yet God will transform every single believer in Christ in an instant, and they will have this imperishable body. All believers' bodies will be transformed from perishable to imperishable, fit for their new context in the kingdom of God where they will live forevermore, fit for glory. This is a great truth. If you have aches and you have pains and you're aging and decaying, you know that you putting on an imperishable body is really great news from the word of God. Our decaying bodies are going to be transformed into something that no longer decays, no longer has aches, no longer has pains. No longer perishable, no longer susceptible to disease, broken bones, no longer fragile, hanging in the balance on different organs, working properly. What a great truth for believers. Well, when's this going to happen? Well, wouldn't we all like to know, right? I mean, that's the question people want to know. When? Well, Paul tells us when. He doesn't give us specifics, but he tells us when. He says, at the trumpet sound. This is the trumpet that accompanies the return of Jesus Christ. This is the trumpet that will be at the end when Christ returns. Then, in that moment, when Christ returns, we're going to be transformed from perishable to imperishable in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. See, the trumpet is going to sound, and we shall all be changed. And this is a necessary change for all of us as believers. And then what will happen, as Paul continues on, It's verse 54. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, what Paul does in these verses here is he kind of puts himself at the end. 
He puts himself after during this bodily resurrection and he looks back and he sees death. He's speaking about the future and he looks back and he sees death after this trumpet has been blown and he looks back at death and he boasts over it. He's taunting death. In light of his bodily resurrection, he says, death, you are swallowed up in victory. You no longer have sting." See, bodily resurrection is the final defeat of death. And this is what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about this final bodily resurrection of believers, looking back at death and saying, you have no victory anymore. There's no sting at the very end. And Paul puts himself at that place and he looks back and he says, death, you're swallowed up in victory. You have no more very end. And Paul puts himself at that place and he looks back and he says, death, you're swallowed up in victory. You have no more very end. And Paul puts himself at that place and he looks back and he says, death, you're swallowed up in victory. You have no more, vi- no more victory. You have no more sting. In the early 200s, when Christian persecution was, was really harsh, was really extreme, so much so that to convert to Christianity was a capital crime against this Roman Empire. And, and what they would do to you was, was horrific if you converted. The kind of things that we've heard stories about being thrown into an arena to wild beasts or, or being martyred in, in many different horrific, torturing ways. And one such story from the early 200s comes from a woman whose name was Perpetua. Perpetua was early 20s and converted to Christianity, gave her life to Christ, and she had this infant child that she had to give up to some other family members as she was in prison being held for her eventual death. Her, her father comes to her in prison and, and pleads with her over and over again to, to get rid of this Christianity thing and forget about it. And she basically says, I, I can't be other than what I am and this is what I am, so this is what I have to do. She knows her, her death is coming, death in a horrific way. She knows the arena is awaiting her. And Perpetua is, is finally put into the arena and the story is just amazing to see her, her own testimony of what happens. But she testifies about how she, she goes into the arena after being flogged. She's given over to, to a wild heifer that would just gore her, basically. And then eventually is, is given the sword to finally put her to death. But what I'm drawn to in this story are her words as she's dying and as she's facing these things. Because here's what she is supposedly said, according to... Uh, the word of the time, she says this to other believers. She says, you must all stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we have gone through. Stand fast in the faith and love one another and don't be weakened by what we have gone through. It's as if she's saying to other brothers and sisters out there, you can face this. Stand firm. Don't be weakened by me. Don't let me be an excuse for you to lose heart in your faith. She's almost saying like, I've been there and I've done it. You can do it. I've been there and you can do this. So stand firm. And this is what Paul is doing for us here. He's, he's putting himself at the end and saying, I've, I've, I've seen this bodily resurrection. This is guaranteed for us in Christ Jesus. He's looking back at death and saying, that has no more victory. It has been swallowed up and it has no more sting. You can do this. And I like what one author has said, and he says, do not fear the shadowy places. 
You'll never be the first one there. Another went ahead and down until he came out the other side. Jesus Christ is the one who has gone ahead of us, down and came out on the other side. And because he has been raised, we too will be, in verse 54 and 55, looking back and taunting death. Jesus plunged into death ahead of us, and he sent word to us, don't fear this anymore. You're going to move past it. And you're going to boast over it. You see, death in Christ, if you are in Christ, death no longer is this horrific monster for you that you must face and don't know how to deal with. And indeed can't deal with. Instead, in Christ, what death is, is it's a doorway to being eternally with our Father. In light of Jesus' resurrection and ours that is guaranteed in him, we can see verse 54 and 55 being played out that death is swallowed up in victory, that it has no more sting. Think about this future reality for us. How amazing it is that Paul gives us this. Death is going to be defeated. No one can escape death, but one day we will look back and it will be defeated. And if you've ever buried someone, or if you've even been to a funeral, you know the weight of this that Paul is talking about here. This isn't just some trite phrase that he's thrown out there. There's weight to death. And so when Paul talks about it, he's not taking these things lightly. Death is ugly. Death is not the way it was meant to be. Death is never okay. This is not how God designed it. But Paul speaks about this day that's coming. When there's no longer going to be babies who die in infancy. When there's not going to be drunken drivers plowing through people in a crowd. Where there's not going to be murders and beheadings. Where there's not going to be tragic car accidents or horrific heart failures or even dying of old age. Paul's speaking about that day that it will be that you will look back and say that death is no more. Christians, all of us, we're going to have to stare death in the face, either our own or somebody else's. But isn't it good to talk about this future where we know we're going to have to stare death in the face now, but in the future we will never face death. What an amazing reality that's guaranteed for us in the scripture because Christ has gone down and had came out on the other side. This is our future reality. If you have trusted in Christ, this is your future reality. One day you will live out verse 54 and 55. One day you will be able to speak those words that death, you don't have victory. You no longer have any sting here. But how is this possible? We don't want to just assume these truths. It's, it's great to talk about, but what's our assurance that this is really going to happen? Now think that the, the text moves us from this future reality. And now what Paul's going to do is he's, he's going to move us to the past. He's going to say this future reality has to and depends upon this past thing that we're going to look to. This past event to give us assurance. If you look in verse 56, he says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Death gets its potency from sin. Death gains power through sin because sin demands death. Sin always demands death. When there is sin, something must die. This is the same as from the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned against God and God covered them with animals. He covered them with these animal skins to, to be a covering for them. Where did those come from? Something had to die to pay to cover their sin. 
And on and on we go through the Old Testament where something had to die in order for sin to be atoned for, in order for sin to be taken care of, that God wouldn't just lash out at us in his holiness and righteous judgment. And so God in his mercy and kindness has said that something else can die in your place, but there's always death with sin. It's always associated together. And this is the, this is the big problem for us. This is the bad news of Christianity, that you deserve to die because you have sinned against God. We have all sinned. We are in Adam. We have inherited his sin nature. And because of that, we must die. And if we don't die, God is unjust in how he's dealing with us. Romans 5.12 says it this way. Just, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like, what about that reality for us? That doesn't sound as nice to us, but this is what's true in the Scripture, is that we have all been born in Adam, that we have all sinned against God, and that death is going to spread to us all. And if you say to me, well, well how do I know that I've sinned? You know, like, you're just assuming that I've sinned, so how do, how do we know? Well, well, Paul tells us here in 56, he says, and the power of sin is the law. See, God has given us this thing called the law to make us aware of our sin, or more aware of our sin. It makes sin, in a sense, observable. It says, here's what you are to do and not do. And so now when you do or not do those things, then we know for sure, everybody's all clear on this, that you have sinned against God. It makes us condemnable before God. We have not lived up to the standard that he has set before us, and now we deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. You see, what the law of God is, is it is demanding of us perfection. Be holy, for God is holy. This is what it demands of us. And we all know that we fall short. Your conscience, even if you haven't ever heard of Christianity, the gospel of scripture, or this law before, your conscience is bearing witness with you that you haven't lived up to this standard. It's not just God's standard that you haven't lived up to. You haven't even lived up to your own standard. We could put that up there. You have failed in these categories, and you are condemned because of this. So what are we to say to these things? What past event can help correct our wrongs that are currently going on? This is where Paul points us backward to the past. And he says in verse 57, But thanks, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what has happened in Christ is that the sting of death has been absorbed by Jesus. Death and sin have been drained of their potency. Christ has taken for us, removed from us the penalty of our sin and the power of sin. He has drained them all. And he did this on the cross. The cross was this place where Jesus paid the price for sins. And he drained sin of its power over us. He drained God's. God no longer holds a penalty for us for our sin if we are in Christ Jesus based on a past event, based on what Christ has already done, but also founded in and grounded in the fact that Jesus is no longer dead, that God has raised him, that he has been vindicated, and that we too will face this vindication, that we will be justified, that we are justified now and will be justified, that we are glorified and will be glorified because of the person and work of Christ. He absorbed the penalty that sinners deserved. In the Old Testament, we have this day of atonement. And there were sacrifices on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would have to make. One was a bull, and that was for his own sins. And then he had two sheep, two goats. One was slaughtered. Slaughtered, they would pronounce sins over these sheep, these goats, and they would slaughter one of them, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. 
so that they could approach God in the right way as he had instructed them. And one goat they would put their hand on and they would pronounce the sins of the people over this goat and they would send it away. Get it out of there. And this is a picture of what Christ has done for us in the cross, that there must be blood. Christ has poured out his blood that we might approach God. He has stripped away the penalty that our sin deserves, but he has also removed the power of sin. It has been driven far away from us. All that sin has been driven away because of the work of Christ. And this is what the Day of Atonement is pointing to. An innocent goat took the, took the bullet that we deserved. That's what the Israelites were to be thinking. This goat is dying where I should be dying. This goat is being sent away where I should be sent away from God. Jesus, in this sense, is kind of this lead blocker where he sees the defense coming and the, the linebackers making a head-on sprint toward the running back and Jesus comes in and takes him out so that the running back can run free for a touchdown. He sees this swarm of bees that are full of deadly venom to people who are allergic to this venom, and he comes and he absorbs all of their sting so that the person who is allergic to their sting no longer has to face it. Galatians says it this way. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse from us. And you think, what's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is this, that you don't live up to it. And if you don't live up to it, you deserve to die. That is a curse for us because we haven't lived up and we do deserve to die. But Christ took that curse upon himself that we wouldn't have to face it. Colossians says it this way. And you, all of us, are included in this. We're dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its, with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. See, there's a file on every single one of us that shows us and tells us before God, here's your sin, and the file is a huge stack. Yet God has done something with this huge file that stands against us, that testifies, that cries out, this person must die. What God has done in Christ Jesus is taken that stack, that record that stood against us, and he has driven it into the hands of his own son. This is what Colossians is speaking of. That the record of debt that stood against you has been canceled, not by your work, but by Christ. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So if sin is taken away, then death no longer has the potency that it had before. It no longer has, as Paul says, a sting. See, Jesus took that power. He took that penalty for us, giving us the victory, giving us all the spoils of the inheritance, giving us all the victory celebration because he took what we deserved. So this victory for, for those who are in Christ, we, we share in this victory. We share in this declaration in verse 54 and 55. We share in this taunt over death and we don't share in it because we deserved it. We certainly don't share in it because we could have earned it or will ever defeat it in and of our own lives. We share in it because of the work of another, because of the past event, because of what Christ has done. But this is for those who are in Christ. And we have to be careful here not to kind of get the cart before the horse. So we don't get verse 55 without verse 57. We don't get a taunt over death unless Christ has died and we are in Christ. We can't boast over death unless we really have victory in Christ. And the only way to have victory in Christ is to fully and finally put our faith in him, to trust in him. And so some of us need to hear that reality today, that you need to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus, that you need to live, because there is no verse 55 if you haven't trusted in Christ. Amen. We can't put 55 up there and chant it and, and say it and taunt death if we haven't trusted in Christ, because if you haven't trusted in Christ, 
then death holds a power over you. And this isn't even the, the start. Not just talking physical death. There's more to it than that. Death still has sting for you. So some of us need to hear that the law has condemned us, but we need to turn and trust in Christ. But for believers, for those who have trust in Christ, Jesus has conquered sin. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he's won the victory for us. Because of this past event, we will have a future victory. So if you're, if you're thinking about this, and I've thought about verse 54 and 55, and, and do we say this now or can we say this now? What's going on here? Because it still seems like we're still sinners. We still deserve to die, and we deserve death because of our sins. So can we say verse 54 and, vis, and verse 55? Do we really have victory over death if we're still destined, all of us, to die? Verse 54 and 55 are spoken kind of after. Paul is putting himself after this bodily resurrection and kind of looking back. And so what do we say now? And I think one author, pastor, theologian is helpful here, and he says this. He says, even though Christ has been raised and has poured out his spirit now, he's speaking of the present, Christians still die. The age of evil is defeated, but it still kills Christians in its last gasp. Yet, the indwelling spirit of the resurrected Christ guarantees that believers will be raised on the last day. Death will not have the last word for believers. It represents the last painful but ultimately ineffective attack against Christians. Believers live in the interval between Christ's resurrection and theirs with the sure confidence that they will live because Christ lives. There's some great balance to what he's saying here. Yes, death is still in front of us. It is still painful, but it's ultimately ineffective. We live in this interval that's already and not yet. Yes, we still face death. It has not been finally put down, but we soon will be in that day. And I like this word when he says, death will not have the last word. That we can say right now, that if you've trusted in Christ, you know that you will die, but it won't have its final word over you so that you can look back one day and say, you have no more sting and you have no more power over me because of the victory that I have in Christ. Death no longer has this final word. Death no longer is this monster to deal with, but a doorway to being with Jesus. For believers, our future is secure because of a past event and our trust in that. Future is sure because of Jesus' cross and resurrection, and we don't want to get those out of place. We look to the future with great hope because of this past event. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's looking to the future through the lens of this past event. It's an amazing view that he gives us. But what about now? Well, future, present, what about now? What about right now? We've seen the past, we've seen the future. What do we do right now? Well, Paul in, in no way avoids what needs to happen now, what needs to happen in the present. And he wants to make it very clear to us, as does all the scripture. If you look in verse 58, he gives us this final exhortation based on the truth of Jesus' resurrection. He says to us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. So before we jump into the rest of this, the end, the end that he's just spoken about through the lens of this past event is meant to transform the present. The end is meant to encourage us now. The truth of the end is always meant to transform us now. We are to be empowered now because of the future. When you look to the scripture, every time the end is talked about, words of encouragement are right behind it. And so you see this in Revelation even. 
This is a call, he says. He's speaking about these end, the things that are going to happen in the end. He says, this is a call for the endurance of the saints. He's encouraging them in their time based on what's going to happen in the future. And we see this all through the, the, the Bible. When the future's talking about, it's meant to be this encouragement to believers in their current time. The rapture that's spoken out in 1 Thessalonians is meant to encourage them to get busy now. And this is what Paul is doing here. The Bible, it never seems to be concerned, not near as concerned as we are about specific timelines. We like to look at the end and we want to draw the specific timelines. And all those are very, very blurry, in case you're wondering. There's all sorts of differing opinions on the end and the day and when it's all going to happen and this bodily resurrection and how many resurrections are. There's all sorts of debate about that. Those things are less clear. Here's what's really clear in the scripture every time the end is spoken about is that it is way less concerned about the timeline and way more concerned about how you live right now. It is so clear in scripture that how you live right now is important and is very clear and spelled out. The timeline for all these things, a lot more blurry. And so I think we need to be a lot more concerned with how we're living now rather than getting a specific timeline drawn out. And Paul gives us, here's how you are to live now based on the end, based on the future. He says, be steadfast and immovable. Now, get busy is what he's saying. Get after it now. Don't let anyone knock you from your work in the Lord. Don't let anyone knock you off of this path of following Christ Jesus now. He's risen, and you will rise too because of what he has done. Don't let poverty, don't let disease, don't let persecution, don't let death even turn you back. Be steadfast, be immovable, trust in the Lord. But being immovable doesn't mean that we're inactive. Verse 58, as it continues, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Get busy. Labor now, because your labor is not in vain. You see, there's a temptation for us as believers. As we come to the scripture and as we look to all this future stuff, this future bodily resurrection and what's going to happen, there's a temptation for us to kind of become detached, to kind of disengage to be aloof or kind of indifferent. I mean, if I record a game on DVR and I find out the score before I watch the game, it makes it a lot harder for me to want to watch the game. Oftentimes I'll record a game with good intentions like I want to watch the game and then I'll hear the score and then I'm like, never mind, I don't want to watch the game anymore. I could spend that hour, two hours doing something else because I already know the end. And sometimes this is a temptation for us as believers to kind of know the end and, and kind of become disinterested, to kind of become disengaged and detached from the things that we're supposed to be doing. And Paul wants to make clear that we should avoid that kind of temptation because what he's saying here is get busy. Don't let up on the gas because you see the finish line and how you're gonna get there. Push down harder on the gas and get there. Because of the resurrection, that means we need to press in further, harder, and with more intensity than we ever have before. Because of the resurrection, what we do matters. Don't let up on the guests. Instead, we press down in knowing that we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Because Jesus has been raised, your labor and our labor is not in vain. That means that everything that we do because of the work of Christ, everything that we do now matters. And this is a needed reminder for us as believers. What we do matters. Leo Tolstoy struggles with this meaning of his life and his work in this work called A Confession. He says this. He says, my question that 
which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question that, by the way, I want you to deal with even as you read through this. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death that awaiting me does not destroy? I want us to let that sink in for a second. Because he's, he's hitting at something that's a core problem for us as people, as humanity. That, that we, we understand that history is clear that everyone is going to die. And then what happens? Because we've seen people die and it seems like all their stuff, all that they've worked so hard has just been completely erased. So what becomes of our work? What becomes of what we're doing? What becomes of our whole life? Why should we live and do anything if in the end I'm just going to die and it's going to be nothing and worth nothing? It's a great question, one that I want to rattle around in your hearts and minds. If there's no resurrection, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then things are meaningless. Then what becomes of our life is nothing because we're all going to the grave. All the possessions that we gather don't go with us. And all the things that we've achieved in human hearts don't matter because we're dead. If there's no resurrection, then this question ought to haunt us. But if there is a resurrection, if Jesus has truly been raised, then our labor is truly not in vain. That we have an answer for this question that ought to haunt our souls. And as believers, Paul says here, Always, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing this, you're sure of this, your labor, it's not in vain because Jesus has been raised, because you will be raised, your labor is not in vain. So abound in this labor. And so some of us need to hear this morning, we need to hear, abound in the work of the Lord. Get busy. You see the end, get going. Host a home group, lead a home group. Have some people over for a meal. Take a meal to someone with a new child. Take a meal to your neighbors. Buy them some flowers and take them to them. Get to know them. Help out in our nursery. Go to Taft and Tudor. Some of us need to come and pray here. We need to be hospitable in ways that we've never been before. Some of us need to hear, get busy now. In light of the resurrection, we need to be active the end shouldn't make us detach. It should make us drive in with more intensity. We should be engaging because there is a resurrection. Faith, it ought to be immovable, but it's definitely not inactive. If your faith is inactive, then you need to check, am I really of the faith? Because there's a pretty good hint right there that if you are inactive, that you don't have living faith, that you don't have true faith, that you don't have what we call saving faith, and that you need to repent and put your trust in Jesus. Some of us need to hear, get busy. But some of us need to hear the end of this. Your labor, wearied saints, is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. I just spoke to a pastor that we all know well, Ryan in, in Everett. He's talking about his work in a dark place in the world. And this verse happens to be an encouragement for him. 
and it's something that I can use to encourage him this week because he knows that there's, results are hard to come by sometimes in dark places, but I, we can say to one another, as we labor for the Lord, your labor, brother and sister, it's not in vain because Christ has been raised. And so when you're being a parent, you're pouring your life out, loving your kid in seemingly insignificant ways, doing the dishes, making them meals, doing laundry over and over and over again. You need to hear this, that your labor is not in vain, that God has called you to love your children, and as you do that, your labor is not wasted. It's not in vain. Some of us need to hear that when we do the lawn, that we're not wasting our time, that God has called us to be keepers of this place, and that we are to do it well. We are to make it look good because God, we're imaging him in even how we do our work. Some of us need to hear that all that you do during the day, your eight to five, your, your work that you do all the time, you need to hear that that's not in vain either, that God has made us to work and it's a gift from him that all those things can matter and do matter to the Lord. Some of us need to hear that our hosting of a home group, cleaning the carpets and getting things ready for the, the kids to come and destroy it all again and for people to come in and spill things on the floor. Some of us need to hear your labor's not in vain. All this cleaning that we do at the church and taking care of the nursery and flipping through the slides each and every Sunday, that labor, that's not in vain. Tutoring at Taft, coaching basketball, all these things that we're trying to do as believers, having our neighbors, those things are not in vain. And we need to hear this again and again and again because Jesus has been raised. Those things matter. So get busy. But if you're busy, like hear that your labor matters. We live in such a results-driven place. Test scores matter. They decide how much money you may or may not get. For college or for high schools, they matter. They decide where you might land and place in different classes. Sales numbers matter. They might decide whether you get promoted or whether you even keep your job. Quality of your work matters, and there's tests for this Quality, quality assurance of how well you're doing. If you're in the sports arena, your wins matter. If you don't win enough games, you get fired. If you're in certain areas, attendance matters. Where if that number isn't climbing or at least holding steady, then that will matter immensely to you. We are in this place that is driven by results and it's easy for us as believers to be there. To think that results are what we need to be looking for. But the problem is, when we look to scriptures, that results aren't easily seen. And a lot of the results that we're really seeking as believers, transformed hearts, maturing disciples, those things take a lot, a lot of time. And so we have to be very, very careful as we look to this labor that we're doing and look through it through this lens of results. Because often it's easy to grow discouraged when we do that. And, in fact, it's not just easy to grow discouraged, it's very, very hard to be encouraged when we look only to results. But brothers and sisters, if you're laboring, I want you to hear this this morning, that the results that matter the most are results that have already taken place. The results that matter the most are the results of Jesus' death and burial. And the result of that is a resounding, clear sound to us that he has been raised. That's the result that matters most to us so that we can look back and say that our labor's not in vain and if we're gonna look at results, we look, the reason we say that is because Christ has been raised and because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised and that's the result that really matters, that Jesus has been raised, that we're gonna inherit the kingdom, that we're gonna be raised along with him. That single reality ought to change how we look at all the rest of the results that we're looking at. Not saying don't look at 
attendance. I'm not saying don't look at numbers. I'm not saying don't look at test scores or sales numbers or all those things. Look through the right lens that there's a result that trumps all other results and that Christ has been raised. And because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised. And so I hope you feel it, right? I hope you feel what Paul is getting at, that this end that he's talking about is meant to encourage and energize and empower us now. This is its purpose. This is why Paul wrote this, that we would be empowered now to labor for the Lord, that we would get busy and that we would know that our labor is not in vain. And on Wednesday, October 21st, 2015, was Back to the Future Day. It was the day that Back to the Future Part 2, Marty McFly and the Doc, flew to October the 21st, 2015. And as the story goes, they meet this future Biff. And if you're familiar with the story, Biff is kind of the antagonist of the story. They meet future Biff, who's kind of old. And long story short, falls into Biff's hands this idea that he can take a sports almanac in the DeLorean back to the past and give it to himself so that he can place bets for the future, right? So you understand, future Biff knows all the outcomes of every score in an almanac written down for him. He decides, I want to take this to my former self in the past so that I can be rich, wealthy, famous, all that in the future. So this is what he does. He gets this almanac, he gets in the DeLorean, he goes and he, he... convinces finally young Biff, who's kind of a moron, he convinces him, take this almanac, keep it handy, place all of your bets on it because I guarantee you will win. I guarantee you will get results. This is a known future that you can place your bets on now that will radically change your life for the good, he thinks. And really when we look at it, Paul's doing something very, very similar here. He takes us to the future. We're looking at this future based on this past event, past work of Christ, what he has done. And he's looking at it and he's writing to us now as if to say, I see who wins. I've got the final results here and I'm giving them to you so that you can place your bet right now. And you can know that you won't lose. I've seen the future, here's the present. You need to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor's not in vain, because I know that this future is sure. This is what Paul is doing here. And so we need to be empowered now to labor for the Lord because of the reality of the future. This is what Paul is calling us to. So let's spend some time just reflecting, listening and responding to what God has been speaking in his word. I want to give us some time to just talk to God individually about where you're convicted, where you are encouraged, what are the things you need to talk to God about, what are the things you need to be hearing and listening to. Father God, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. That 
that describes to us this amazing future reality where death is defeated and is no more. We don't have to worry about tragedy anymore. But God, I pray for the people that, that can't say that they're in Christ, that haven't trusted in you, because that reality is not there for them, that they won't boast over death saying it has no more sting anymore because sin holds power in their life. So God, I pray that you would draw in those unbelievers, that you would bring them to yourself, that the amazing truth of the gospel and the love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus would transform their hearts. Father, I want to pray for us as believers that as we look to the future through this past work of Christ, that it would empower us now, that it would encourage us now, that we would get busy and abound in your work, in all the little mundane, tiny little things that have to be done, in the laundry, in the doing of dishes, in inviting our neighbors over, in hosting a home group, in taking care of our kids, in loving one another, in going to tutor at Taft, in cleaning this building, in switching the slides. God, we want us to abound in those kind of things because we know that's not in vain. And God, there are many of us who feel wearied sometimes in our work because we don't see results. And God, I pray that you would change our hearts that we wouldn't be concerned primarily with results, but we'd be concerned with abounding in your work knowing that there is a resurrection. God, encourage our hearts. Encourage the hearts of wearied saints here and all over the world knowing that this is not the final and ultimate reality here and now. And God, we thank you for giving us the victory through Christ Jesus. And in our encouraging moments now, in the times when we feel empowered now to abound and do this work, God, may Jesus be the only one who receives glory over and over and over again until he comes, when we will one day all share and resound together that worthy is that lamb who was slain, that he has the reason that we were saved, he's the reason that we kept on working, he's the reason that we are raised even at this point. God, we want glory to be given to the Christ who has won us, redeemed us from the curse of the law. So God, help our hearts right now as we respond in this time of prayer, as we respond when we sing together and as we pray. God, help our hearts to be fixed on you and your glory. And may you really be shouted and proclaimed as the one who wins the victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.